Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Beautiful spring day here in the valley. Hope it is nice where you are and that spring has sprung and that uh, hopefully everyone can spend a little more time outside than we've been able to over the winter time and, and just enjoy some nice weather wherever you happen to be. Great episode for you today and, and one that I am very interested in and, and I really enjoyed recording, not only because of the subject matter, but also because of who I got to talk to. And that is Rita Shelton Deverell. You might know her from her broadcasting career. She is a member of the Order of Canada. But today we are talking all about her wonderful book, American Refugees Turning to Canada for Freedom. This book came out a couple years ago, and it is a wonderful profile of individuals who have come to Canada from the United States at various points in time. So it looks at people who came during the revolution. It looks at the Underground Railroad and, and individuals who came to Canada through, through that. And then it gets into more modern, it gets into the more modern era, looking at McCarthyism, looking at Vietnam War and what drew people to Canada. And so the process through which Americans came to Canada are told through these individual stories. It's very powerful and it illuminates a lot of the ideas that Canadians have about themselves, or at least the popular mythology of Canada, while also looking at the perspective of those who are coming to Canada at these various moments in time. And of course, Rita herself has a very unique perspective on this, given that she was born in the United States, came to Canada as a young woman. So she has that perspective as well. And, and at the start of the book, and we talk about it a little bit on the episode, in 2015, going through the Miami airport where they had a layover coming from South America, she was told that she's still a U.S. person and was detained and had to deal with immigration in the United States because of her birthplace being the United States. But she had a Canadian passport. She'd been a, a Canadian citizen for 40 years at that point, but was still considered a U.S. person. And it really just illuminates the challenges associated with coming to Canada, the immigration back and forth. The term refugees is very intentionally used in this book. And Rita and I talk, the term refugees is very intentionally used in this book. Rita and I talk about her usage of that in the title. Really just a, a wonderful exploration of a lot of these ideas that to a certain extent, govern the relationship between the two countries, at least in terms of the way it is conceived of popularly and the mythology that surrounds Canadian American relations. Just an absolutely wonderful book that I was lucky enough to find about a month ago and went through it. And as I was reading it, I thought, wouldn't this be a great episode and a chance to talk to Rita? Because it prompted so many thoughts in my head. So hopefully it does the same for you. I really enjoyed talking to Rita. So let's get right to my discussion with Rita Shelton Deverell. All right. And Rita Shelton Deverell joins us now from Horseshoe Valley. Beautiful place in the country to be, Rita. How are you today? 
I'm absolutely good. Uh, in order to be isolated and locked down, I have been here for more than a year. So I haven't spent hardly any time racing up and down the 400 highway from Toronto. <laughs> and really, if there's a silver lining in all of this, not having to drive up the 400 is certainly one that we can all approve of. Exactly. So uh, let's talk about the book again. It's American Refugees Turning to Canada for Freedom. And Rita, to, just to cue up this book and, and where it comes from, I was certainly touched when I read it, just learning more about your story and the process through which you came to the book. Early on, there's a, a story in here from 2015 about your experience at the airport in Miami. But but for anyone who doesn't know, could you just elaborate on what your background is and how that particular route to Canadian citizenship may influence the way you think about some of these issues compared to, say, someone born and raised in this country? Well, I have now gotten so. I always introduce myself by saying I was born in 1945 in Houston, Texas, Negro Hospital. And for the record, I have been black and female ever since. Uh, that, you will calculate, is 75 years. Um, I say this because most Canadians have to know where you're from before they can hear what you're saying. So I, I found myself saving a lot of time by uh, getting this uh, on the table immediately. Now I'll give you, though, a little more context that comes from just, in fact, the past year. What that doesn't tell you is that I grew up in the same black ghetto of Houston as George Floyd, and that we went to the same high school. Now, he is, of course, uh, or was, before he was murdered, about 40 years younger than I am. So that is the context, though we had very different lives. I got to Canada, and I tend to be embarrassed to say this because I want it to be more dramatic uh, than what it is, which is I met and married and fell in love with and deeply appreciated a Canadian I met in graduate school uh, from Orillia, Ontario. And uh, so that's how I got here. Now, I want it to be, you know, as I say, something more dramatic. And then people ask, are you still married? And uh, I confess that we are. Our um, 54th anniversary is uh, coming up in a few days. So that's where I was born in Houston Negro Hospital. That's how I got to Canada in 1967. But there have been a lot of evolutions in my understanding of both countries since 1967. 
Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that would have to do with your career. You were in broadcasting for a long time. You also taught journalism at, at the University of Regina. So what is it about that, your career path? Because to me, when I read this book, I, I thought that this is the sort of thing that is written by a journalist, is written by somebody in the field who has thought about this for a long time, who has that perspective that is really different from what say, a career academic would have on it. So what do you think it is about that career path and, and your experience that drew you to write this particular book? You know, it's interesting. Some form of the book has been kicking around for me for a long time. The form it actually took was determined by the era in which I wrote it. I think my first inklings that there was a story, I lived in Saskatchewan longer than I've lived in any other place in Canada. Rex Deverell, to whom I am married, was the uh, playwright in residence at the Globe Theatre in Regina, uh, although the Globe hired me first, and I'm very careful to always say that. They hired me as an actor, which is what I was before I was a broadcaster, um, in <laughs> 1971. And this was a bit of a miracle because I am black. And this was before theaters had discovered non-traditional casting. It was before uh, it was talked about widely that there was uh, discrimination in cultural industries. And lo and behold, I auditioned for the Globe Theater. They hired me. We went to Saskatchewan. So where my first inkling of this book came about is when I noticed in this place that has only a million souls in its population, there were some exceedingly outstanding people living in Saskatchewan, and they were there because they had to flee from the United States. So this was an observation that I had made in the 1970s, and I particularly wanted to write about a woman named Florence James, who is in the book. Uh, she is a refugee from the McCarthy era. So I met Florence when I was being a young actor at the Globe Theater. So that book never got written, although I did uh, extensive interviews with Florence James, uh, and those those tapes are in Saskatchewan archives uh, still to this day. I then fell into broadcasting, and it, it really was uh, through a series of, of accidents. And I still wanted to write about Florence, but at this point, I had a career that was taking up all of my time. So I didn't get back to these ideas until I stopped being a full-time broadcaster. And uh, that was in about 2016. Uh, no, I don't mean 2016. I mean uh, 2006 when I was leaving APTN, Aboriginal People's Television Network, in Winnipeg. And then I got back 
to uh, doing something about Florence. So I wrote a, a one-woman show about Florence James. And then University of Regina Press, who published American Refugees, expressed an interest in a book that Florence had written about herself. Um, and they wanted to publish it. Now, this was almost humorous because um, a very good colleague of Florence's, Jean Freeman, and I had been trying to get Florence's book published for about 20 years, and <laughs> it, it couldn't get published. So the uh, new actual human being who was the publisher a fellow named Bruce Walsh, who's now at House of Anansi, said, I want to publish Florence's book. Well, this was amazing. And I wrote an epilogue to uh, Florence's book because she hadn't talked about Saskatchewan. She had talked about her career in the U.S. and how she got hounded out of there, but she hadn't talked about her coming to Canada, which, of course, kind of justified it for University of Regina Press. So suddenly I was back with this material. And uh, Bruce Walsh said, what would you like to write next? And I pitched him maybe three ideas. And this is the one he liked. American refugees, and he was getting very um, uh, hyped about the, I will call it the lead up to Trumpism uh, that was happening before Trump was actually elected. And he said, the time for this is now, let's do it now. And as you pointed out, then uh, if I was being a little slow on this, when I was detained in the Miami airport and told I was still a U.S. person, which I didn't think I was, um, I suddenly discovered I could write faster. The day in Miami uh, certainly stands out when you read the book uh, of being, de being detained, being told you're still a, a U.S. person. And one of the quote, the quote that really stood out to me is that someone said to you that the U.S. still loves you. Uh, yes. Um, now, this story of why I am a U.S. person, bear with me, it's a little convoluted. Up until <laughs> 1974, the oath of Canadian citizenship said you swore allegiance to Queen Elizabeth and all of her heirs and successors. And renounced all other citizenships. In 1974, this clause was deleted. I became a citizen in 1975. So the oath that I studied uh, was the one that said, I renounce. I'd been back and forth to the States a million times. My parents lived in Houston uh, until their deaths, which were in the uh, early 2000s. I'd never had a problem. No one had ever spoken to me about still being a U.S. person. But a 
few years prior to 2015, a law was enacted that allowed the U.S. to um, tax anyone who might be considered a U.S. person based on birth, where they were born. So suddenly I became one of these people. Uh, what I, so I never thought I was still a U.S. person. And so suddenly I'm an accidental American. There are many people working on this issue specifically because it has some other spinoff effects that are, that are quite nasty. Um, but what I immediately decided is I do want to get rid of this U.S. citizenship that I didn't know I had, because if I write this book that says some unflattering things about the United States, I only want Canada to be responsible for me. Uh, dual citizenship uh, you may have noticed, doesn't work out too well for people because when they uh, get into trouble in their other citizenship, it's it's hard to negotiate who should get them out of trouble. So I only wanted Canada to be responsible for me. So I did go through the process of getting a certificate of loss of nationality as I say at the end of the book, uh, and it did take almost two years to obtain this piece of paper, but I thought it was important to get it. Yeah, absolutely, especially after the experience uh, that, that you describe in the book. And that's interesting that you mentioned the idea that this book could get you in trouble with, with the United States or something that an American audience might not appreciate it. And I think part of it might even just be the title of American Refugees, when certainly in, in contemporary parlance, when refugees are discussed at the political level, they're generally not looked upon favorably. I, I, would, I would argue that they are presented as, as not having much value to whatever country is taken. That's how the political class would describe refugees. So, and, and I know that's not how you would, would describe them in the book, but could you just talk about how that process of the title and why the word refugee applies to Americans who were coming to Canada in the cases that you study over the course of the book? I'm not using the term uh, literally, as in a convention refugee. However, most of the conditions apply. The people in the book and the people, I, I will say, in their class or group of people do fear for their lives, or at least their political lives, um, in most cases, it's for their uh, livelihood or sense of worth. Um, let's take one of the most obvious, the McCarthy era. What happened to those people is precisely that they lost all of the work that they do. 
the reputations that they have. They were unemployable. Um, many of them worked um, under pseudonyms because they were ruined. So uh, it is not in those cases fear for their physical life, but it's certainly fear for their lives as they have known them as having worth. We also, I think, don't ever much think of Americans as refugees because the country is so close. Most people speak English, um, which is a major language in Canada as well. And also, um, they seem to fit right in. And uh, many uh, American immigrants are highly significant in Canadian institutions. So it becomes hard to think of them as hard done by. However, um, they uh, are having a major disagreement with the United States. Now, there are the, the, some of the more obvious war cases, um, like the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Underground Railroad, uh, in the case of um, uh, runaway slaves. Um, so uh, that is uh, fear for your physical life. Uh, but in the other cases, uh, Vietnam, that could also be considered uh, fear for your physical life. But uh, as I say, with McCarthyism and even with Vietnam, we're talking about usually a major philosophic disagreement. Uh, these are not people who necessarily would at all times be pacifist. So uh, these people are afraid for their lives or the lives of their uh, children and families, their continued existence. They're thriving. Uh, they're, they're afraid for all of that. Um, I did a much earlier, uh, much earlier uh, television series on Vietnam draft resistors, and one of the things that I wanted to do, this was Revision TV, I wanted uh, some women in the uh, series, and I wanted some non-white people, since most Vietnam draft resistors were, in fact, white. But I found uh, some women who were partners of draft resistors, or uh, mothers of uh, men who were going to get to be draftable age and were saying, I want to get this life out of the country. So they did. Um, and uh, I found some non-white people who um, especially did not know why they were being sent or their children uh, halfway across the world to um, annihilate some other non-white people. So um, that that is a a mixture of my actual life or my life as I know it, my sense of worth, my sense of what's important to do. 
I may have talked around your question, but I think for all of those reasons, we we don't think of Americans as refugees, but almost everyone who is in the book is either a first generation, second generation, third generation person who is in deep peril because of being in the United States. Right. And and the book does go through and it does tell these stories through first person accounts. And, and it, it's really well done in that regard that makes you feel a connection to these people. And you get a sense of the motivation behind coming to Canada from the United States in, in each of these various cases. And the other through line that I, I really noticed through the book, and we were talking before we started to record, that back when I was an undergrad, I studied the idea of anti-Americanism through the 18th and 19th century, first in the United Provinces and then in Canada after Confederation. And it's always these major moments in time, things that we look back upon, like the Revolution, War of 1812 would be another example, certainly the Civil War. And then once we get into the 20th century, you mentioned McCarthyism, Vietnam War. These are major moments where in the popular imagination of Canada, there is opposition or was opposition to these things, popular opposition at the time that they happened. So we have this idea that Canada was this safe haven for enslaved people through the Underground Railroad, for instance. And that is the narrative that emerges in Canada within the way we think back on it as we as we do history in the 21st century. And I'm wondering for you going through and looking at this, is there some sort of way that that it works that people who are being profiled in this book who are coming to Canada at these moments see some sort of ideological confluence with Canada that the two just work together? Or is it purely situational where they are themselves endangered, feel endangered and have to escape. And Canada is, well, right next door. Like that's where you can get to. Like there's a, a practicality to coming to Canada, a geographic practicality to coming to this country. So, you know, is, is there some balance between those two things or is there something else that I might be missing as I go through these stories? I, I, I think there is a, uh, a, a confluence <laughs> And I, I, I started by saying I first thought of this book when I was in Saskatchewan. And um, there you have a particular set of circumstances where people did not just come to Canada. They came to the social democratic government of Tommy Douglas. That's where they were coming to. So my Florence James woman came to Saskatchewan to work for the Arts Board, which predates the Canada Council. So, yes, there's something very attractive there that does not exist in the United States. She's she's fleeing a place that has turfed her out as an artist and turfed out many artists in, in, in that era to a place, Saskatchewan, that has an arts board before it has full electricity. It's a very unusual 
place that she's coming to. So definitely the attraction is something specific that's going on in Canada. Uh, but on the flip side of this is you're right. There are stories we like to tell ourselves. And in this case, I'm using we to mean Canadians. <laughs> we have our favorite mythologies about how enlightened we are. So at the same time that uh, the Underground Railroad definitely existed, and it definitely got many uh, runaway slaves to Canada, we have lots of trouble remembering that there was slavery in Canada. We, 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 we are almost to this day, if you talk about slavery in Canada, at least some people will tell you that you're wrong. Uh, one of my favorite experiences was being invited to a very uh, notable girls' school, private girls' school in Toronto, when they wanted to talk about media education. So there were a whole bunch of us media types who were invited to give lectures at this girls' school. This is about 20 years ago. And so I started my presentation. It was also February, so it's Black History Month. And I held up the two TV guides, the one from the Globe, the one from the Star. And they both were featuring shows that had something to do with the Underground Railroad. Only one of the series talked about slavery in Canada. So when I said this to the young ladies in the class, they assured me that I was wrong, that there had been no slavery in Canada, and that they were at a very good school, and they had had a very good history class, and uh, there was no such thing. I finally was just interested in the size of their negative reaction. It was huge. So we like to remember the Underground Railroad we prefer to forget that there was slavery in Canada. Uh, one of the things I've been talking about recently, and, and, and speaking of Regina, when I first got there, which was in the early 70s, uh, one of the things that people kept saying to me is that they were not racist. And I wondered why they were saying this, and I finally figured out it's because it was at the the height of the civil rights era and they were watching all of these terrible images from the United States where uh, black people were being uh, shot and and uh, and had police firing fire hoses and all dogs, all kinds of terrible things are happening to black people. And so these people in Saskatchewan wanted to tell me they weren't like that. Well, they weren't. But there were hardly any black people in their environment, and they were as racist as you can ever imagine about indigenous people. Only they didn't define that as racism. So at the same time 
that they were able to say, we're a lot better than Americans because we're not racist. They were terribly racist about indigenous people, which was the problem that needed to be dealt with in their sociology. So, taking us back to the, though the present era, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, I wrote a letter to my local paper, which was the St. Thomas, Ontario paper, and uh, talked about understanding why black people in the United States were in despair. There was a quite negative reaction to my letter because the citizens of southwestern Ontario felt that I didn't appreciate that I had come to a part of the world, a part of the country, where there was no racism and I should just be glad and happy and count my blessings. That was a completely different reaction to the letter I got, I wrote about George Floyd. Hmm. Uh, when I realized that George Floyd and I went to the same high school, I thought, okay, I better write a letter uh, saying I'm here in Aurelia and I understand what's going on. This, 50 years later, people wanted to listen to. They wanted to understand. It was a different attitude, but look how long it took. So, yes, we we have these moments where we are able to say, we're not like those awful people down there, and we're not. But at the same time, we kind of erase when we're not so good. Yeah, and, and there's the great quote, of course, and I always forget who said it, but if, if basically it's that if the United States didn't exist, Canada would have had to invent it because, uh, you know, we, we, we need it uh, for our, our, our national unity. And it's interesting, too, you mentioned a couple of moments or a couple of situations that I'm somewhat familiar with, as listeners might know, I, I work for Parks Canada as a historian currently. And last summer, the summer of 2020, one of the new historic designations that was announced was slavery in Canada as a national historic event. And the pushback that we got when that was announced was incredible. Just to see the number of people, uh, you mostly on social media, who were saying, no, that's not real. Like, you're lying about this, which, of course, is, is mm. not true. We are, we're not lying about it. it. It did take place. And then in terms of Saskatchewan, yeah, I, I had the opportunity to study. I have an MA from the University of Virginia. And part of that was a research contract reading the Moose Jaw Times. I think I've read every issue of the Moose Jaw Times between 1934 and 1940. And the Klan was very active. The KKK was very active in Moose Jaw and yeah. talking about its meetings. So, you know, these are the, the, the types of history that don't typically make it into Heritage Minutes, for instance, and, and sort of what popularly gets discussed. But it also brings up the, the broader issue of race as discussed in this book, because a bunch of the stories that are, are told here are certainly, there's a racial element to them. Obviously, the, the Underground Railroad is, is part of that. But then with the Vietnam War, you talk about how predominantly it was uh, white individuals who were 
who had the means, I guess, to escape the draft. So there's there's a racial, a socioeconomic element to that. While at the same time, you do talk about indigenous peoples in Canada and the relationship between indigenous peoples and and, and immigration and and just the the way in which the colonial state has tried to, in whatever way I guess it it has tried to, uh, work with indigenous peoples across the country. So how much does race and ethnicity play a role when we're talking about the movement of people, uh, people coming to and from this country, when we're looking at these moments when they're trying to either escape something or come to something specifically to a place, as you mentioned, like in Saskatchewan, they're, they're coming to a place that ideologically they agree with. Like, you know, what what is the impact or the role of race when we have these discussions? Well, I would think it's a big question. <laughs> yeah. And I uh, think it, it, it varies tremendously with uh, era, with political party, with everything that is that is uh, surrounding the 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 issues. The indigenous question, I felt I had to have a discussion of that in the book, and it it didn't seem obvious in a way to anybody but me, uh, because um, indigenous people are not the American refugees <laughs> that I was talking about. However, uh, the border is a very important non-concept <laughs> in indigenous people's history. And as I say, it also is related to this remarkable blind spot that we have in Canada uh, about not being racist. We're, we're not racist. We're not racist. It's just that we have this tiny indigenous problem, this colonialism. Uh, we have even had governments who have said Canada does not have a colonial past. So I found it was something I had to talk about. You uh, and and so the indigenous person who is included in in the book is somebody I've known for a long time, a journalist named uh, Dan David. And as I relate in the book, uh, the way I know Dan is he was posted in the Regina. CBC newsroom in the 70s. And at that point, he would come back uh, from lunch and there would be notes in his typewriter. This is when people still had typewriters saying, go back where you came from. And this was from his CBC colleagues who didn't know in Saskatchewan that they had a tremendous racism problem. Right. Um, Dan, so he, he, was, he was told about me. Uh, we became uh, friends. Um, and the way I was able to help is to bring his problem to the attention of a CBC executive who I knew 
would solve this problem. That is, solve the immediate problem of whether this was behavior that the newsroom could uh, support, that he would get rid of this behavior. And he did. Um, but, see, that's an amazing amount of disinformation, misinformation, fake news, fake history from journalists. So it's appalling. We know about recently how hard the Canadian government worked to convince black people that they didn't want to settle on the prairies in the 1900s when the government was trying everything it could to settle the prairies with non-indigenous people. It wanted immigrants, but was appalled when some of these uh, immigrants turned out to be black. And there is right now going on a, a wonderful series on um, CBC called Black on the Prairies. Uh, and as I say, it's actually uh, miraculous that there are any black people on the prairies, given how hard the uh, government worked to discourage them. So, uh, and we all know about uh, the Chinese head tax and uh, how hard it was for immigrants of color to finally be um, accepted in numbers in Canada. So race is always there. And because we are proud of not being racist, that makes it even harder for us to deal with. And I say this with uh, the greatest of love of Canada. I adore that I am here. I've always adored that I am here. But this habit that we have, um, in any class in diversity training or anti-racism training, you first have to work through people's wanting to tell you that they are not racist, their parents were not racist, their grandparents were not racist, nobody has ever been racist in Canada, except there seem to be these few problems that we seriously cannot deal with. And uh, so, yeah, race is frequently a factor. There are other factors, but race is a factor. And I'm curious, too, for the people who you study and who are are mentioned in this book, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, this idea that we collectively as Canadians have in our heads of for so many people and, and for so long, Canada has been this beacon, this shining light for people who want to escape the, the United States at these moments in time. Uh, again, whether it's during the revolution, Underground Railroad, McCarthyism, Vietnam, we hold ourselves up as this shining light, almost like the same way that the American ideal of the city on the hill. We have this idea of that in our in our own heads, or sometimes at least it comes across when you when you read very nationalistic work that that comes out about these these moments in time. How do the people themselves, the people who were coming to Canada at these moments, how do they conceive of Canada, and how does that match up, if at all, 
with some of the notions that Canadians might have about themselves, or, or at least that Canadians present about themselves? I think the conclusions that I come to in the book are that at first, everything is very much better because Canada has uh, admitted them to the country. The people in the book have all kinds of wonderful qualifications for Canada to be glad that they're here. Um, and they did get away from the problem that they were getting away from. This is all quite true. And their lives are much, much better. Uh, well, in many cases, they are absolutely thriving. But then what they discover is that there is some problem that Canada needs to work on, and they start to work on that. This is usually after they are citizens, Canadian citizens, um, and after they are deeply uh, embroiled in whatever kinds of institutions and work and uh, sociology that they are embroiled in. Um, you just referenced uh, Parks Canada um, uh, talking about slavery in Canada. Think how long it's taken Parks Canada to do that. Yep. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, not like it. Uh, you have been beating people over the head with it for <laughs> for years and years. Um, so they start to work on whatever the, the problem is, and this does not take away from how they're better off. Yes, they're better off, and they're uh, trying to help Canada be even more better off. Um, and, and you see all kinds of signs of, of, of progress. Um, I said I became a citizen in 1975, and I talk in the book about, in recent years, having presided uh, at citizenship ceremonies because I'm a member of the Order of Canada and I can, can do that. Well, one of the things that is quite noticeable about a citizenship ceremony now is that there's likely to be an elder there who will say to the new citizens, welcome, uh, we're glad you're here. Paddle along in your canoe beside us. We've always been here. Now, those elders weren't at citizenship ceremonies in 1975. So this is a big improvement. This is a big recognition of, uh, actually, it's not, a, it's not a huge recognition, but it stops immigrants from saying, well, if those Indians worked as hard as my people worked, 
they'd be better off. Uh, they just don't know. So uh, the new citizens are being taught some historic framework that admits to colonialism, even if uh, some governments can't, uh, that admits to racism, even though some governments can't, systemic racism. So, yes, things are much better, and they may even be good. And the areas that the new Canadians, the American refugees, start to work on may not be their area, or it may be where they discover problems. And these are things that have to be addressed. This is a tiny example that, of course, is not in the book. I'm presently a trustee of the Royal Ontario Museum. When I first became really aware of some troubles at the museum, it was 30 years ago when the museum had an exhibition called Into the Heart of Africa which the black communities of Toronto greatly protested. Um, and finally, the museum, 30 years ago, got an injunction to keep the protesters off of museum property. So this is a very old story. Um, through a process that lasted a long time and involved quite a few people, Four years ago, the museum apologized to black communities and to actual people who had been protesting, some of whom went to jail uh, because of this exhibition, apologized and said it was racist and we hope never to do this again. Um, I'm not sure that it's an accident that the leadership who could see that this needed to be done were a number of American refugees. And that's, as I say, a very recent, a very recent story. So are the refugees better off because they're here? Yes. Do they see some problems here? Yes. And I, I, uh, I have one colleague who, one Canadian colleague who was born here, who said he loves to be on committees or on boards with uh, former Americans because they're very clear and get things done that it would take him months, if not years, to find the right language to convince people. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think that's that's part of the personality uh, type. I guess part of that, too, is, is as, as you were talking there, I was thinking at, at the same time, there's been a lot written about the Canadians who go to the United States. And certainly a lot of our, our greatest exports uh, at times are people going to the United States. And I wonder just, you know, this book, of course, 
it, it talks about the Trump era, the the nature of the relationship it, that comes up in the introduction as to you know what the prime minister said after the election in 2016 and where we ended up in, in 2018 as it d- discusses the relationship between the two countries. But is this dynamic of individuals coming to Canada from the United States at these moments in time, is this just, do you think, moving forward, is this just part of the evolution of the relationship between the two countries that you're always going to have people looking to the other side? You know, Certainly we have folks across the country who look to the United States to go, and, and sometimes for political reasons, there's... I, I've read things that come out of you know some groups in Alberta, for instance, who look to places like Texas as more aligned with some of the values that they talk about. Certainly, there's economic uh, integration between those two places as well. But is this just part of the relationship that whether you're American, whether you're Canadian, this is just part of it, that there's always going to be people who want to go to the other side? Or is there something specific that differentiates people coming north versus people who might be looking to go south? Well, I think that many human beings always need to leave where they're from for someplace else to discover what's good about where they're from or what's bad about where they're they're from. If you grow up in some place other than Toronto in Canada, um you may think you need to get to the big T.O. where things are really happening. In fact, I was quite tickled um, by reading an article very recently about uh, actors of color in Saskatchewan who talked about how much, how little opportunity they had. Because unlike Toronto, where uh, actors of color face no problems, uh, they faced problems. So I, I had to say, well, actually, since I was hired in 1971 in Saskatchewan, which never would have happened in Toronto in 1971, uh, this uh, Saskatchewan just has to rediscover something it once knew. So there are people, of course. So then they get to Toronto and they have to go to Paris or London or, or New York. Uh, that also that also happens. Um, on the other hand, there are some distinctives about Canada, regardless of how much they get whittled away or battered, that are different and wonderful. Um, one is in the areas where I've functioned, regardless of the problems, uh, state support of the arts and cultural industries, uh, that Canada has a tradition of doing that, um, is wonderful and remarkable and is a totally different thing from the United States, that there is in most places a viable public school system that teaches people instead of a complete... I went to segregated schools to the end of high school, and it is appalling to me to realize that the schools, the segregated schools that I went to were much 
better schools than the integrated schools of today. Uh, it's almost impossible to go to a public school in the United States that teaches the schools are completely broken. That is not the case in Canada. And uh, I am delighted whenever uh, someone in Canada is fighting for the viability of the public schools. Um, Medicare, uh, an almost obvious one, something that the United States has tremendous problems with. I've been uh, doing binge reading about Obama the last little while, and the idea that the Affordable Care Act was, in fact, his greatest contribution, and the amount of trouble that is being gone to to dismantle what almost seems obvious. So um, those are three things that matter a great deal to me personally, and on the indigenous issue, in spite of the fact that uh, we've done many terrible things, we're also in that public school system. Twelve-year-olds uh, uh, know more about residential schools than their parents or their grandparents. They're learning stuff now that's important for them to know. And I, I talked about the citizenship ceremony. So all of these things are different and they're better. They're just not perfect. Yeah, I think that's really, really well said. And again, the book is American Refugees Turning to Canada for Freedom. Rita, you mentioned you remember the Order of Canada. So I know there's a lot of material online about you. But if, if people want to get more information about the book, where can they find it? In most libraries... In uh, most, uh, I su support your independent bookstore. If, you, if the bookstore doesn't have it, ask them to order it. And, uh, of course, through the online chains like Amazon. But I will give a plug for your uh, independent bookstore. Yes. Uh, always, always love going to the independent bookstore. No question about it. So Rita Shelton Deverell, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on the book. I appreciate you talking with me this afternoon. Thank you for asking me. Uh, delighted to be on your show. Thank you, Sean. And there you have it, my discussion with Rita Shelton Deverell, and my thanks to her for her time speaking with me, and, and my thanks to our friends at the University of Regina Press for helping set this up. And again, the book is American Refugees Turning to Canada for Freedom. As Rita said, you can get it most places across the country, but certainly your local independent bookstore is a great place to start. So that will do it for this week. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, the ratings, comments, all those things. Helps us grow the show, helps other people find us, beat those algorithms. And of course, do head on over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are there, plus the written content for the site. And if you didn't know, I write a short little description of each episode and for episodes where we're talking about a book just a little summary and my thoughts on the book are available over at activehistory.ca so do check that out and follow along 
on social media. I am at the Sean Graham. You can let me know what you want to hear on the show there or at HistorySlam at gmail.com. Got a lot of great stuff coming up over the summer that I'm very excited to record and share with everybody out there. Just uh, some wonderful discussions that we're having on the show. So it's, it's going to be a fun summer. We will be back with you again next week. But until then, thanks for listening. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.